0: Welcome to No More Risk Better a Credit Sites Podcast. I'm Winnie Caesar, the Global Head of Strategy.
1: And I'm Zach Griffiths, the Credit Sites Senior Investment Grade Strategist.
0: As strategists, we aim to make sense of the macro and the micro, highlighting opportunities and the risks facing the fixed income markets.
1: As important as the macro call may be, we understand that credit investing at its core comes down to keen single name selection, and we at Credit Sites benefit from the expertise of our team of over 100 analysts across the US, Europe, and Asia. This podcast offers a look at the conversations that we have with our analysts on a regular basis. If you are an investment professional focused on the wide universe of fixed income,
0: you'll want to give this podcast a listen.
1: Hello, and thank you for tuning in to No More, Risk Better, a Credit Sites podcast. I'm your host, Zach Griffiths, head of U.S. Investment Grade and Macro Strategy. And joining me today is our U.S. banks team. We have Jesse Rosenthal and Peter Simon. Thank you both for taking the time. Our pleasure. All right. So let's start with your initial impression of Q3 earnings now that you've had some time to digest. It sounds like the, the large banks generally performed well in the third quarter. What was your impression of the results, Jesse, and what are your key takeaways for your outlook going forward?
0: Yeah, I think Third quarter results were were really largely in keeping with at least our expectations. I think that's a necessary caveat just given the sentiment overhang that's still absolutely impacting the sector and the industry. On the good news front, we continue to see a slowdown in that deposit outflow pressure. That's obviously been a very important data item to watch and track over the course of the year. But the kind of deceleration that we saw in the second quarter continued into the third quarter so I think the general stabilization around deposit outflows is playing through. That's certainly positive, roughly similar on the deposit repricing front. The repricing rates are going to continue going up throughout a hiking cycle. But we're again, obviously, after the results of this year, really, really focused on any signs of a potential step change in that. And again, the third quarter results were were quite comforting. In- incremental, a couple percentage point uptick in cumulative betas. But very much in keeping with the sort of normalization and steady type of trend that we'd like to see. And then on the other side of things, margins, we're still solid. I mean, we are giving back a a little bit of the gains that the sector sat on as a result of 2022. But, you know, 2022 saw industry margins expand 80 to 100 basis points. And right now we're giving back, I could probably count on one hand how many basis points per quarter. So I think that's all, again, in keeping with with expectations. I'm sure we'll talk about it later, but similar thing on the credit quality front, continued, I think, signs of the normalization and a seasoning trend, but really no indications of sort of cracks in the credit environment. And Peter, regional banks have been back in the
1: news flow, especially given the big run up in treasury yields that we saw through the end of October. We've gotten a little bit of relief there, but certainly still seeing rates market volatility. How are you feeling about your outperform recommendation on the regional banks? And what are your biggest
2: takeaways from Q3 earnings from the names you cover? Yeah, so results were decent enough from just a bottom line perspective. Still some profitability uh, pressures there, but certainly in keeping with our expectations. We did see, as you mentioned, increase in treasury yields over the course of third quarter. And we did see some pressure on regional bank spreads as a result, as I think the market is still kind of assuming higher rates are a bad thing for the sector. However, we would characterize the news as mixed rather than all bad. I think the bad for the sector in terms of the run-up in yields is just There was more pain for the bank securities portfolios, much of which is in mortgage-backed securities. So earnings were solid, but that was largely more than offset in terms of movements in banks' capital positions from lower fair value in the securities portfolio flowing to other comprehensive income in equity. So a bit more pressure on the bank's capital positions. We still think they're reasonably well-positioned. But that was sort of the negative. The good news, as Jesse mentioned, was, you know, we see rates at the short end starting to stabilize, and that is starting to flow through to deposit costs and net interest margins. So we still saw some pressure in the third quarter, but it's starting to abate. And there's a line of sight towards stabilization eventually on on the deposit repricing and margin front. So... We've had a period of spreads across the regional banks starting to, to widen again. We still see really good value in the group as a whole. And even with the securities portfolio pressure, the quarter kind of supported our view that the banks can still manage through this period of transition to higher rates. The, the important point here that I would make that that I think is sometimes missed is what's happening on the liquidity front. The regional banks have spent the last few quarters shoring up their liquidity positions they were already in a solid place but are in an even better place than they were a couple of quarters ago so that allows them to wait for those unrealized losses on securities to accrete back over time
1: and real quick before we move back to jesse are there any names in your coverage that you're particularly concerned about from a capital position perspective it seems like no but i wanted to just follow up to see if, if there are any Problem names are ones that you're concerned about, or if your outperformed recommendation still pretty broadly covers your space at this time.
2: Yeah. I'd still say it pretty broadly covers the space. There's definitely a few names that are lower than others. Truist is is on the lower end, Keycorp, Comerica, in terms of if you're looking at tangible capital, which fully adjusts for the, the fair value of the AFS securities but there's no bank that we view as in a similar position to, I won't bring up the names of uh, of the banks that failed back in first quarter, but you know we don't see any banks at risk of, of being in that position. Okay, great. That That's very helpful. And getting back to you, Jesse,
1: I know when we were talking coming into this year, one of the key drivers of your outperform recommendation for the big banks and financials broadly was a downshift in annual issuance, something that I think we'd been waiting for, for a couple of years and and hadn't materialized. Has that played out so far this year? And how are you thinking about the technical picture from a supply and demand perspective in terms of your preliminary thoughts heading into 2024?
0: Yeah. So better to be lucky than good, I suppose. But we entered this year calling for a 35 to 40% decline. From the big six, obviously the big six banks drive the vast majority of the issuance. And as, you know, kind of single biggest issuers in the index will absolutely sort of drive the performance there. And so we had circled a 35 to 40% decline coming in at around 95 billion total. Happy to say through October, the big six are tracking down 37%. So we're looking pretty good on that call. The sort of conditions for the decline in issuance are fairly clear. And I think we saw them play out. So the big one is obviously a slowdown in bank balance sheet growth. You can obviously tie that to both a slowdown in loan demand, but then obviously a big factor in quantitative tightening, stripping liquidity out of the system. But then the other big thing is just volatility. I know it's odd to kind of live through this year and say that vol has been fairly subdued, but at least from the big banks' perspective, Compared to last year with Russia's invasion of Ukraine and the corresponding just freak out across global name your market, commodities, FX rates, what have you. All of that drove a lot of demand for the bank's capital markets activities, and that tends to be what gets funded with with wholesale. So the conditions this year in terms of just tempered vol, most of the domestic rate hikes had already run through in 2022. The banks are still making a good amount of money in the sales and trading environment but it is not the sort of all activity demand spike that we saw in 2022 and so if we're again kind of looking ahead to to 2024 we're still obviously cracking down on the numbers but I think our bias would be for probably flat-ish to slightly higher issuance not going to the 160 billion plus that we saw for three straight years in peak COVID era but something that's probably a little bit more normal for a couple reasons volatility could very well spike but then secondarily you're presuming that we're getting closer to the end of a monetary policy cycle so that might ease up some of the funding cost pressures and then big picture we do have uh, regulatory changes coming down the pike this is going to impact both the big six issuers As well as a lot of the regional banks that Peter tracks, actually, the Category 3 banks, who are the large regionals that were already facing a long-term debt requirement as late as or as early as last October, they're the only kind of cohort where we've actually seen a year-over-year uptick in issuance. Obviously, it's completely and utterly dwarfed by just how big the the GSIBs are. So if we go into next year, I do think that there's a lot of regulatory driven sort of needs. I don't think it's necessarily going to be a massive spike, like I said, but I think the bias needs to be that we got our kind of one shot 40% decline this year, and we can't really expect that to recur. And Peter,
1: how about you at least thinking about supply going forward? I know Jesse just kind of commented on the the category three banks, but in terms of supply or perhaps even the, the balance of supply and demand for your sector, how are you thinking about that? technical factor
2: affecting spreads over the next 12 months yeah I, I think the the main driver of kind of the net issuance trends for the regional banks will be the build towards long-term debt requirements which were proposed over the summer and presumably will be finalized soon and phased in over the next few years so you do have some lift for the sector in terms of issuing Maybe in this vaguely in the 60 to $75 billion range over that phase in period, which you know is likely to be three or four years until we're at the end of that. So the sector has already started to build towards that, but we should see more of that going forward. I don't think that it's going to have uh, a huge impact on spreads. I think the amounts when you look at the phase in uh, period that they don't have to do all of this all at once the amounts should be uh, digestible by the market. And I think as the market gets more comfortable with with the fundamental picture for these names, I don't think that will, the issuance itself will, will put much pressure on spreads.
0: Yeah, I would just chime in there briefly that we did have this long-term debt requirement for the category three banks proposed in October. So well before these <laughs> the failures were really front of mind and Peter and I were out speaking to clients and there was this general view of i'm full up on bank of america and jp morgan especially after how much they had issued i would love to get my hands on more usb or pnc these are high quality regional bank paper very illiquid hard to really get your hands on so obviously the events of the past six months have flipped sentiment on its head but sort of this bigger picture idea that the banks that are issuing maybe not right now but in general these are very high quality very defensive Issuers in a segment that is so unbelievably top heavy. Again, assuming we can get past this sort of spike in negative sentiment, there really should be a lot of underlying demand for this paper. That's helpful. And in terms of
1: just considering what you guys are expecting from a regulatory capital perspective for these larger regionals, I know we kind of just went through the long term. That requirement that came before all of the turmoil for regional banks. I'm sure we could probably do a whole podcast on this topic, but are there any high-level thoughts you guys would want to get out in terms of what you're expecting from a regulatory perspective for the
2: large regional banks going forward? Sure. So the biggest impact coming forward uh, on the regional banks from a regulatory capital standpoint is the inclusion of AOCI in capital. So just for anyone who's not familiar with that, the regionals, Category 3 and 4, currently can opt out of the inclusion of AOCI in capital when they're calculating their regulatory capital ratios, that AOCI is where the unrealized losses on securities flow through to. So it's created a situation, and, and that was on display this quarter, where the reported capital ratios might be going up, but sort of the tangible capital or adjusted capital ratios are maybe flat or going down depending on on what's happening with with securities so uh, eventually the AOCI uh, bucket is going to be included in capital Uh, that's being phased in over multiple years along with Basel Endgame uh, for the whole sector so that won't be fully phased in until 2028 at the earliest so there's plenty of time for the banks to build up to that but they are going to be in capital hoarding mode in the interim. And that's why you see, for example, vast majority of the regionals are not repurchasing shares right now that they're trying to build capital organically.
1: Great. So certainly changes coming down the pipe, but got some time for that to all be put into place and for these large regionals to kind of adjust their capital as necessary. So switching gears a little bit, I feel like. We on the strategy team have been getting a lot more questions about the state of the consumer going forward and we wanted to get your perspective on the consumer lending and credit card activity of the banks you cover and kind of give us your perspective on the health of the consumer overall. I think there are some stats that get thrown out there that are either not adjusted for inflation or for the size of the economy and kind of try to overplay that issue or the issue that the, the consumer could be facing. So can you kind of give us your thoughts on how healthy the consumer is based on the recent results you've seen?
0: We think the consumer is still quite healthy. There's a lot of positioning around narratives. You mentioned the headlines that, that we're all seeing. I think there's a lot of missing context in a lot of the consumer, especially the consumer credit sort of narratives that are out there. I'm somewhat sympathetic to it because we are talking about a very much a normalization trend. In other words, things are getting worse. I'm not gonna stand here and say they're not. Things are absolutely getting worse, but it's all about, I think, sort of dimensioning the downside here and and what is sort of normal. And I think that's a little bit of the struggle because the banks are going to continue to report worse and worse credit quality over at least the next couple of quarters. You're gonna continue to see Net charge-off rates on credit cards and delinquency rates move higher year over year. So there's, there is still very much this headline risk that's hanging out there. But the actual kind of underlying fundamental trends that are underscoring that, I think, still look quite healthy. There's a lot to be had in the sort of seasoning and normalization dynamic playing out in consumer credit portfolios. Not to go too in the weeds on that, but in effect, when you come out of a period of effectively zero growth, and no losses, so so your back portfolio is extremely well-seasoned and extremely high quality, which was the case obviously kind of as we got to mid-21 after the initial COVID retrenchment. When you then go into a period of extremely high growth where the growth is also coming from a more normalized sort of consumer credit distribution, as those balances move through the seasoning curve, it is necessarily and mathematically going to put upward pressure on these metrics. It does not mean that there's something necessarily more fundamentally awry. We do still see plenty of evidence, especially coming out of third quarter results that indicate that that dynamic, that hypothesis on seasoning is still intact. And we would look for the loss curves to start to bend in the back half of the year. I think if we don't start to see that, then we would obviously very much have to reassess. But you know, it's also hard to say that we need to wait six to nine months at this at this period of time but i think big picture you are starting to see as you always see in in sort of cycles more fragility a little bit more pain as you move down the income spectrum we're definitely seeing that across issuers we're hearing that across non-credit consumer names you know pack consumer packaged goods retail you know kind of down channel type of movements but down channel while maintaining overall healthy levels of spend and importantly maintaining overall healthy levels of asset quality. I'm still kind of picking through it, but the the Fed puts out an excellent survey that really kind of gets into the nitty gritty of, of the consumer credit se- sector and the different segmentations by tiers. My kind of pithy mantra here is in an age of widening inequality, the descriptive power of aggregates uh, erodes over time when it comes to the consumer but the positive thing is if you look into this survey data that comes out every three years you still see evidence that it's not just aggregates making up for you know a dramatic difference in sort of positioning that there is a lot of evidence that even that lower income tier which again i'm not saying are not facing more fragility now and are not going to face more fragility in the future. But on a bigger picture perspective, the leverage is significantly lower than it has been over the past, you know, 15 to 20 years. Debt service is a lot stronger as well. DTI is a lot stronger. And again, these are being able to be broken out by those sort of income or wealth deciles. So, you know, big, big picture. I do still see this quote unquote, and I know it's overused, but normalization trend as, uh, is still a very, very much a working hypothesis here. Peter, are you
1: seeing kind of the same thing from your names or are there any names specifically that are seeing any more pressure in their consumer businesses? Or would you largely just echo what Jesse outlined there that we are seeing a normalization, but we're coming from stronger levels from a financial perspective across household balance sheets at this point.
2: Yeah, I think that's largely in line with with what I've been hearing uh, in, in my coverage. I think normalization from those extremely strong post COVID levels is a, sort of a well worn theme at this point. It's been going on for over a year, and we even started to hear some companies this quarter hint at that normalization trend starting to taper off a little bit. So Capital One, for example, you know came out pretty clearly saying that you know they see in terms of very recent. Uh, delinquency trends, um, some stabilization of the normalization. So that would imply that, you know, there really aren't any major developing issues in the consumer books, that really you have kind of a seasoning trend. And as long as we don't have a significant downturn in the cards in the near future, that really you should start to see that kind of stabilize
0: yeah i just two other quick things to add on the credit card side of things in particular in the interest of i think pushing back on on headline risk zach i think you absolutely rightfully mentioned we see the credit card balances hit all-time highs that gets blared across the screen that's going to be the case i know it's been a very very long time this is my kind of career first for a true inflation cycle but what i do know is that bank balance sheets are priced in nominal dollars and so on the credit card front, you just put it into a very simple inflation context, just use a simple PCE deflator, and you look at the card balances and they're actually still lower than they were pre-COVID in 2019. And then just even on top of that, and I think this is a an interesting point and, and we're not entirely sure which way it goes. But as we're thinking about the sort of macro outlook and the cycle, obviously consumer spending has been surprised to the upside in the face of the inflationary pressures, even though we are starting to see a little bit of slowdown. And I think big picture, if you put the credit card balances in a spending context, that also looks extremely, extremely strong. So if you kind of ignore the trough in in 2021 during the COVID era, the revolving credit to PCE right now is the lowest it's been since the early 1990s. So I would say that kind of puts two outlooks, two potential outlooks here. One, I think it indicates that the consumer actually has room to leverage to maintain the credit card spending. So that could be potentially, quote unquote, inflationary. Maybe we don't see nearly as much of a slowdown on the consumer side because they do have that credit. The flip side of it is that's a demand function. And I'm not entirely convinced that these lower income consumers who are really starting to feel more of the pain on the discretionary front are willing to go into credit to support those balances. If that is the case, not a great growth outlook, but I think pretty good implications for the downside credit cycle risks
1: that's kind of incredible actually i know you'd mentioned this before but just thinking about credit card balances still lower than they were relative to pre-covid after adjusting for inflation and revolving credit to personal consumption expenditures as a whole is the lowest it's been since the early 1990s is that correct
0: yep and it tells in that metric i quite like actually because it tells a fairly kind of easy and simple cyclical story where you get a really sharp deleveraging coming out of the financial crisis, which we all know, and then it just kind of bottomed out for five or six years with a little bit of incremental uptake in 2015, 2016. Coincidentally, that was also the last time we started to see credit metrics get worse on the consumer side, and there was this, why is this happening? Unemployment is so low and the economy is strong, and again, seasoning dynamics right so i think big picture there's there's a lot to like actually on the consumer credit side of things and and again the big picture and this is more for the bank than the macro but big picture we need to remember that especially for the consumer lenders the name of the game is not default avoidance it's risk-adjusted pricing And when you're sitting on a 15% net interest margin, you can swallow a lot of losses that's sort of endemic to the business model.
1: I think those are incredibly important points and frankly have been really helpful for us forming our strategy views. I certainly came into our discussions that we're having now for 2024, thinking now is probably the time to get more defensive as you've had such a massive increase in the policy rate and consumer spending has been so resilient, but it seems like there's, there's probably plenty of room for that to continue. And that's consistent with our call after talking to you guys and the rest of the analyst team that we're not calling for a recession next year, but we are looking for the Fed to begin normalizing policy in early 2024, a little bit earlier than the market is anticipating, even without a recession, as we think inflation will continue coming down. So how are you guys thinking about a gradual normalization of the policy rate affecting operating results for your coverage? I know we touched on this a little bit more, but want to give you both a chance to comment on that. Peter, maybe I'll start with you and then move to Jesse.
2: Yeah. So kind of that scenario, gradual normalization from the Fed you know, without a significant downturn, that's the ideal scenario for the regional banks at this stage. I think that would be a really good outcome for them. If the Fed is done hiking and you know maybe starts cutting at some point in 2024, that gives them some relief on the funding cost and deposit cost side, they'll be very happy to to not have that, that pressure continuing. Meanwhile, you know, on the asset side, there, there'll still be some benefits coming through as uh, fixed rate assets rep- roll off and reprice gradually. So banks kind of discussed this scenario recently at a conference I was at, and the expectations seem to coalesce around Mid 2024, net interest margins should start to improve, assuming the Fed is done and and begins normalizing. And then on the the capital side, you know, assuming normalization from the Fed, you know, you're likely to have long end rates at least stop going up, if not coming down a bit. That's going to be a, a tailwind on the capital side, as you know, as, as the securities. You know, securities portfolio rolls down to maturity. You'll have some capital creating back that way, and then of course that scenario implies, with the lack of a severe recession, implies pretty good environment for credit quality. Yeah, that sounds
1: like a good environment to maintain and outperform recommendation on the sector. Jesse, do you have anything you'd want to add, just for the big banks or any other perspective on kind of how we're thinking about the macro side going into twenty twenty four?
0: Yeah, I think Peter nailed the sort of fundamental fulcrums on the rate side of things. From my perspective, I also think the sentiment, because you can argue that putting aside the events of this year, going to a lower rate environment, not necessarily the best case for the banks, right? I know what the headlines and I know what the narratives are this year, but the reality is banks are making more money with the higher interest rates. That is purely the case. Return on equity, net interest margin, pick your metric. They are making more money with higher interest rates. They're going to make less money with lower interest rates. That's that's sort of endemic to the, to the business model again. But I do think we have a sense that the market at least is trading a lot of these names and a lot of the subsectors on a very sort of one-dimensional interest rate risk trading pad- pattern. And so from that perspective, I absolutely agree with Peter in the sense if we get a normalization in policy, especially if it means lower long-end rates. I think that sentiment flips on a dime and because it's been so one-dimensional about interest rates i mean if you track the short interest position in some of the bank etfs over the past two months it tracks very very clearly with 10-year yields and so again we can quibble about the fundamental operating perspective but i think right now where the banks are trading both on equity and credit side of things it's fairly well I think in our mind divorced from those fundamentals and it is sort of a rate sentiment so if we do finally and conclusively turn the corner on the rate cycle I struggle to see how the banks would not rip from here
2: awesome
1: well that's certainly our call we have a 10-year Treasury yield forecast of 375 at the end of 2024 so we'll see if that plays out it's going to hinge certainly importantly on the inflation forecast and and what that means for the fed. So Jesse and Peter, thank you both. This has been incredibly helpful. I appreciate you taking the time to come on the podcast and thank you all for tuning in. We'll catch you next time on No More Risk Better. Credit Sites, disclaimer: All price references correspond to the date of this recording. This podcast should not be copied, distributed, or reproduced in whole or in part neither Credit Sites nor its affiliates, makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of any information contained in this podcast. Credit Sites is not providing investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice. It's not providing research or making any recommendations, nor is Credit Sites offering or soliciting any transaction with respect to the purchase or sale of any security. The receipt by this listener of this podcast is not the giving of advice by Credit Sites or its affiliates.